Dear Lord, unless you speak, we perish. These dear people sitting before me need to hear beyond the voice of a mere man. Will you conduct that divine dialogue between our hearts and your spirit? We can face anything tomorrow, but we can't not hear your word today. The most pressing need of the hour is to hear your sweet whisper. God, we need to see you for who you are. And we need to see ourselves for who we are. We are aware that there's a spiritual battle going on right now. That is trying to keep us blind. Blind to our sin. Blind to your holiness. We do not desire to be blinded. Please open our eyes that we might see. Holy Spirit, communicate truth to us. Make it live before us. Plant it deep within us. There is a work I do in this pulpit. And there is a work you do. Please come alongside of me and do work among us. For we are unworthy of the privilege to think deeply through this text. We are unworthy, but we are not incapable. You've tasked us with this glorious work. We want to cover Solomon, but we don't want to stay at Solomon. We want to get to the greater Solomon. May it be said of us after this hour, then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Help us to honor the author's intent, which ultimately is the Holy Spirit. And help us to receive from this text what you have intended for us to receive. This chapter will not return void. This chapter is for our sanctification. This chapter is a revelation of yourself. We grab hold of all of this and approach 1 Kings 10. I do feel inadequate to deliver something of such inestimable value. This text is infinitely priceless and your preacher poorly lacking. I desire to preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. God, you ride the stallion of history. You control it. You are the only one who can break that stallion. We desire to see you as creator and controller of all things. Make us thirsty for thy glory and thoroughly consumed with thy holiness. Father, give us gospel discernment. Grant that in every fall we may go lower on our knees. And when we rise, it may be to loftier heights of devotion. Create in this building a greenhouse where gospel seeds are planted in good soil and growth results. We've all been in services where we felt the word grip us. And we've all been in services where we left untouched. We left untouched because we didn't want to be touched. Either consciously 
or subconsciously. We were not ready to encounter you in the text. When we leave, grant that we may be able to say, He touched me. We need to leave this meeting knowing that your word has had an unmistakable impact on our souls. Do this, Lord. We beg you. Do this for your glory alone. This is our corporate plea. Amen. King Solomon garners a lot of attention. He's making quite a name for himself. Quite a name for his God. He possesses so much wealth and so much land that the nations are starting to take notice. Word begins to trickle out. What's happening over there? Uh, who is that king? Some scholars believe Solomon began to organize international wisdom conferences where people from all over would come to hear his wisdom. Gary Miller, the Irishman who teaches in Australia, thinks this is where the book of Ecclesiastes comes from. One of these wisdom conferences. Word of Solomon and his God is getting around the world. Whether that's through the grapevine, or through the wisdom conferences, or through international trade, people are beginning to take notice. They are peering over at Israel. Solomon is the talk of Old Testament Facebook. People are blogging about him and tweeting about him. His fame is spreading. He is drawing more visitors than a, than a Bucky's gas station. <laughs> All eyes on Solomon. Here's what I have for you. All the nations in one woman, verses 1 through 13. All the wealth in one king, verses 14 through 29. All the nations in one woman, all the wealth in one king, verse 1. Now when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue, with camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. Solomon begins to catch the attention of a particular woman, a royal lady, the queen of Sheba. She ruled the Sabaeans. They were a group in the southwestern corner of Arabia where modern-day Yemen is located. She's so curious about this king and his nation and his God that she decides to visit She travels 1,500 miles to meet the king. This is not 1,500 miles in a vehicle with air conditioning and padded seats. This was in chariots drawn by horses. This was a long and taxing journey across a hot, barren desert. It would have taken months. Some commentators say up to three years with the size of her entourage. She is impressed by Solomon, but she is not a small player on the global scene herself. She's quite, quite impressive herself. 
This is one of the most famous state visits in the history of international relations, a dramatic encounter. She's heard of this glorious distant kingdom through caravan traders that regularly pass through Israel on their way to her. Her arrival must have caused a commotion in Jerusalem. It's a grand and showy entrance, accompanied by armed guards on every side. Royal camel after royal camel enters the streets, loaded with spices. Not spices for food, but the ancient version of cologne and perfume. Spice trading was a major Sabaean business. She did not come empty-handed, which is not surprising. That's diplomatic protocol, bring gifts. Heads of state customarily exchanged lavish, lavish gifts. She gives her incredible rock collection to Solomon. It consisted of some of the rarest jewels in the world. She's bringing her treasures to the king. Somewhere in the royal complex, King Solomon and this queen of Sheba sit down and begin to talk. Two powerhouses at the same table. Two dignitaries having a conversation. The text reveals this queen didn't only bring gifts. She also brought questions. Questions for the king. And I'm wondering what these questions were. If I know Middle Eastern ancient, ancient Middle Eastern kings and queens, I might be tempted to think these questions regarded establishing trade partnerships, negotiations, let me ask you some questions to see if, you can, see if we can partner together in trade arrangements. Exploring our options. Um, I don't think that's the type of questions she brought. Maybe she brought trick questions. Like, what is always coming but never arrives? Then Solomon responds, tomorrow. Oh, nothing stumps you. How about this one? What is so delicate that saying it breaks it? Solomon responds, silence. Riddles! She, she brought him riddles! No, I don't think that's it either. I don't see these questions as frivolous tests of mental quickness or tests of practical sageness. Perhaps political questions. What do you think of the geopolitical situation in the Middle East, Solomon? How would you handle the fighting between nation X and nation Y? Our passage says she brought hard questions. Maybe questions like, why is there suffering in the world? Why do bad things happen to good people? Is there life after death? All these questions that were plaguing her mind, keeping her up at night. It's the torture of eternal questions. She empties her heart to God's king. Verse 3. And Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain. Nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. She came and put his reputation to the test by asking tough questions. She soon, she soon found out that it not only put his reputation to the test, but it put her heart at ease. 
Solomon answered every one of her difficult questions. She came to the right man, equipped by God. On and on she went until remarkably she had nothing left to ask. The well of her inquisition was dried up. Her mind could not generate another question. One African pastor said, Solomon answered everything. Systematically, logically, thoroughly, patiently, winsomely. Nothing was too hard for Solomon to deal with. No question too complicated, no riddle too twisted, no mystery too profound, no scenario too difficult. After the sit-down Q&A, Solomon takes the queen for a tour of his kingdom. First the Q&A, now the tour. We actually have the report of her reaction after the tour, verse 4. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, and the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, and his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. She did not leave disappointed. She marveled at his house, his servants, his splendor, his impressive array of court officials, the lavish crystal glasses, how he feasted. She's breathless. This king is simply breathtaking. She watched him try difficult case after difficult case and he always gave the correct verdict. She studied his organizational structure. It's a perfectly efficient kingdom. She's taking notes and bringing back ideas to southwestern Arabia. She sits in on his cabinet meetings, his staff meetings. She sits with him at dinner and notices the amount of food, the quality of food. This king spreads an impressive table. She's a lady, so she notices the details, even down to the clothing of his servants. It's clean, it's pressed, it's the clothing you would expect from those serving the king. He even took her to the temple of God, the outside of it. He took her to church. He took her to see his sacrificial offering for sin. She witnessed him approach God by burnt offering. I wonder what further questions this spawned. What's happening in that temple? Why is it built like that? Why does there have to be shedding of blood for the forgiveness of your sins? Solomon evangelized this woman. He told her how to approach God, how she had offended a holy God, he explained the sacrificial system. Remember, beloved, Solomon made a habit of offering 1,000 burnt offerings at a time. She witnessed this utter devotion to his God. What extravagance. What lavishness in his worship. It moved her. It shook her. It took her breath away. She is near fainting. This queen takes a moment to catch her breath. Then verse 6, and she said to the king, the report was true 
that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom. But I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told. Your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the report that I heard. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. He has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. The reports didn't even tell half of it. The description of his grandeur was actually far less than what it was in reality. His wisdom was even greater than reported. Solomon exceeds her expectation. She admits to thinking the glowing reports had been exaggerated, but they were not. The report she heard did not approximate the reality. His wisdom and his goodness overwhelmed her. She said, it's all true, especially the blessed state of your people. She declared the king and his men were the happiest people on earth. I would serve your tea. I would clean your palace. I would rather be a servant in your house than a queen in mine. I have a rule. Never meet my heroes. I live by that to help manage my ex ex expectations about people I admire. They are usually not as advertised. They usually fall short of what I am told about them. I am glad the Queen of Sheba didn't live by my rule. Because if she did, she would have never discovered one who was actually greater than the reports about him. Only a great God can produce such a great king. She has learned that all Solomon has is connected to a God named Jehovah. Philip Riken and John Woodhouse seemed to think this queen was converted. She got saved. She went from disbelief to belief. A pagan queen falls on her face and says, Surely God is among you. She recognizes Yahweh as the true God. This queen heard about God's greatness, but then experienced it for herself. She didn't just want to hear about it. She wanted to experience it. Verse 10. Then she gave the king 120 talents of gold and a very great, great quantity of spices and precious stones. Never again came such an abundance of spices as these that the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. She gives the king a token of her esteem. Scholars estimate that it's a value of 3.5 million today. Now, Solomon will return the gesture and give her a gift. 13. And King Solomon gave to the queen of Sheba all that she desired. Whatever she asked besides what was given her by the bounty of King Solomon. So she turned and went back to her own land with her servants. Solomon owes the queen nothing. 
but he gives her everything. He reciprocated her gift by giving her anything she wanted out of his royal bounty. The queen of Sheba and the king of Israel came at last to the end of their meeting. They could have gone on talking forever. But after being wined and dined, satisfied, she returns home with a newfound love for Israel's God. The trip was more than worth it. Her questions answered, her breath taken away, her affections awakened. Now, church, what do we have in this story? What is happening? This is an answer to Solomon's prayer at the dedication of the temple. Foreigners coming to the temple. There are a couple of truths displayed. Here is the first. A light to the nations. The nations are being drawn to the God of Israel. A light to the nations. The nations are being drawn to the God of Israel. Yahweh isn't a mere village God or even a national God, but a global God. He's bringing all nations to himself. The fame of this king is reaching the nations. The nations will continue to come. People were supposed to look at Israel and say, what a great God. And that's exactly what the queen of Sheba is doing. All the nations in one woman. That's the point here. This is a little microcosm of the end when some from all nations, tongues, and tribes bow before God's king. God's king will receive global worship. You must fix your eyes on the final outcome of history. Solomon only wrote a couple of psalms, but one was Psalm 72 where he said, May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. Long may he live. May the gold of Sheba be given to him. Solomon wrote about what was happening. The nations began to thirst. They began to hunger for for Israel's God. In our text... Some from one nation bow before Yahweh. In the end, some from every nation bow before Yahweh. He will bring the nations to himself. He will make the nations glad. When we talk about missions around here, we are not speaking of it like it will never be accomplished. We've read Revelation. It will happen. What begins as a trickle in 1 Kings 10 turns into a flood in Revelation 7. The nations will bow. Here's the second truth. It's a plea. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Experience the glory of God's king for yourself. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Experience the glory of God's king for yourself. Non-Christians... Come to King Jesus like this woman came to King Solomon. Don't just hear about the goodness of God's king. Come and see for yourself. 
There is a difference between hearing about the Grand Canyon and standing on its rim. Don't just take my word for it. Go experience King Jesus for yourself. You will have your breath taken away. This queen was being confronted by someone utterly brilliant, utterly captivating, utterly majestic, utterly excellent. She stood before God's king with gaping mouth. He's impressive. Friend, this is a call to come and behold God's king. Come and marvel. And you don't have to travel 1,500 miles to experience him. You simply must travel to a book. Do you know that God is merciful because you have heard about his mercy? Or because you have experienced it personally? This queen had a small portion of God's truth and responded positively to it. She was given a bit of light and pursued it, a bit of knowledge and obeyed it. Verse 1 points out, she heard of the name of the Lord. The name of the Lord. That's the character and reputation of this God. You say, Kyle... I'm a seeker. I'm on a journey. Well, bro, you've been on a journey for a long time. The whole point of a journey is that you arrive at a destination. Go ahead and make a move. That's the emphasis of this text. She came, verse 1. She came, verse 2a. She came, verse 2b. How did she respond? Three times she came to the king. She was not on an endless search. She reached the destination. Non-Christian, you've been given light. Now come to this king and declare your allegiance to him. Bring your questions to God's king. Let us imitate her example. Colossians 2, 3, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in Christ. There is no wisdom conferences like the ones that Jesus puts on. This event in our text is an anticipation of the reality described in Isaiah 2, verses 1 through 4. When the nations flock to Jerusalem to hear the wisdom of God. By the way... This is not the first time a king has received gold and spices from foreign dignitaries. There was another king, 3,000 years later, who received these same presents. Kings from the east bearing gifts of gold and spices for the one who was born king of the Jews. Only this Christ is worthy of our tribute. He is worthy of our treasures, our honor, our awe. If we do not give him what he deserves, the queen of Sheba will condemn us in the final judgment. That's what Matthew chapter 12 verse 42 says. When Jesus preached the queen of Sheba story, he emphasized our need to bow before God's king. Then he says, one greater than Solomon is here. Bring your treasures, your honor, your all, and place them at the feet of the greater Solomon. That's the only time we have record of Jesus preaching this text. He says, the queen of Sheba would consider you a fool who failed to be impressed, in awe, overwhelmed, enthralled, captivated by me.
when Jesus preached this text, it wasn't received well. He said, the queen of Sheba marveled at the wisdom of God's king. Why are you Jews yawning at the wisdom of God's king? There is a miracle in the marvel. God gives us the ability to be captivated and overwhelmed by the excellencies of Jesus. We are fully accountable if we do not marvel at the king. But the marveling itself is a miracle. This is who Christians are. We are captivated by this Christ. We crown God's king our king. She, she watched Solomon sacrifice for sin. We watched Jesus be the sacrifice for sin. Solomon spread an impressive table, but Jesus spreads a bigger one. It's called the marriage supper of the Lamb, and blessed are those who are invited. You think Solomon's servants are well-dressed? Wait until you see Jesus' servants. He clothes them in white. He clothes them in his righteousness. That's what we're wearing to the meal. When non-Christians meet you, they should be impacted by how happy you are just being a servant of God's king. How happy are his servants? We are happy because we will live with him forever. Hey, hey, nations, nations, you want to be glad like us? This gladness comes from the king. Dear sad Christian, has Satan caused you to lose sight of the excellency, the impressiveness, the majesty of your king? Have you began to lose the awe? Something in your life shading his brightness? Your stress clouds his glory? Your hurt blocks his majesty? Do not despair. His glory has not been diminished. You simply need a, a fresh glimpse of it. What's the queen doing? She's bringing her treasures to the king. You must see that. The author intends for you to take notice of it. In fact, the author places verse 11 and 12 right in the middle of the queen of Sheba's story. These verses are so out of place. They interrupt the story and have nothing to do with the story. That's why I skipped them. Verse 11. Moreover, the fleet of Hiram, which brought gold from Ophir, brought from Ophir a very great amount of, of augum wood and precious stones. And the king made of the augum wood supports for the house of the Lord and for the king's house, also lyres and harps for the singers. No such augum wood has come or been seen to this day. Now, we all like high-quality wood, but what does that have to do with this? Why say it in the middle of this woman giving her treasures to God's king? I mean, talk about about to reach a peak and then just falling. The narrator put it there for you to see. 
that there were also other precious materials arriving from other places. Other treasures being given. It's a picture of wealth just pouring in. Solomon was not beholden to this queen for her gifts. He didn't need them. He wasn't overly impressed by them. Moreover, as she is bringing her gold, he's getting a report that other gold has arrived. Give your treasures to this Christ because he's worthy, not because he's needy. Also, teachers and preachers at FFC, our job is easy. We display the beauty of Christ in our teaching. That's what the people need. That's what they came for. That's the only thing that will sustain them when life begins to unravel. Give them the beautiful, majestic, enthralling king and you will do what God intended for you to do in that text. All the nations in one woman, verses 1 through 13. All the wealth in one king, verses 14 through 29. All the nations in one woman, all the wealth in one king. This part is much shorter. This section has a purpose. The author has an intent. He has a goal. The purpose is to lay out before you a rich king, a thriving kingdom. A more positive financial picture could not be imagined. Solomon is amassing a fortune for Israel. God created wealth in Israel like he created manna in the wilderness. They were to remember they could not become independently wealthy. Everything they had came from the hand of God. God made his nation prosper. The prosperity brought the eyeballs of other nations. Verse 14. Now the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. Now that's 125 tons of gold not including the other trade, trade agreements or his 401k. It's simply a year's revenue, and it's repeated year after year. The, the annual tax revenues were enormous. The tolls and tariffs were paying off, verse 15. Besides that which came in from the explorers and from the business of the merchants and from all the kings of the West and from the governors of the land, a lot of people paying to access the trade routes. 16. King Solomon made 200 large shields of beaten gold. 600 shekels of gold went into each shield. And he made 300 shields of beaten gold. Three minas of gold went into each shield. And the king put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon. What does Solomon do with all this gold? Well, with some of it, he makes war shields. 3,000 tons of gold in total make all these shields. 15 pounds of gold in each shield. D.A. Carson said they were full-length rectangles for full-body protection, but are functioning here primarily as decorations. The smaller shields, probably circle-shaped, were made of 1,200 pounds of gold. Verse 18. The king also made a great ivory throne and overlaid it with the finest gold. The throne had six steps and the throne had a round top and on each side of the seat were armrests 
were two lions standing beside the armrests. While 12 lions stood there, one on each end of the step on the six steps. The like of it was never made in any kingdom. Solomon's large and posing throne was approached by six steps and flanked by lions. This throne represented great power. He's a king on his throne. Verse 21. All King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold. And all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were of pure gold. None were of silver. Silver was not considered as anything in the days of Solomon. Now this is interesting. The abundance of gold drives the value of silver to nothing. They toss silver cups like they are red plastic cups. This is a good summary of Solomon and his splendor. The ancient world has never seen anything like this. Verse 22. For the king had a fleet of ships of Tarshish at sea with the fleet of Hiram. Once every three years, the fleet of ships of Tarshish used to come bringing gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks. Tarshish, th that word, recognizes the kind of ship instead of the location they traveled. These ships are designed with large cargo spaces to facilitate long voyages, specifically designed for extensive ocean voyages. Long ocean-going ships, large, capable of carrying hefty cargo. Solomon is running a global business. Solomon's fleet of ships bring in wealth and exotica. Trading along the coast of Arabia and from India to Africa, the extraordinary cargo consists of ivory, apes, and peacocks. Ancient Near Eastern monarchs delighted in exotic pets. Solomon's personal petting zoo consists of baboons and exotic birds. Verse 23. Thus King Solomon ex excelled, who did he excel? Thus King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. And the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind. The whole world sought audience with him. All the earth sought the presence of Solomon. No, no wonder these wisdom conferences were so popular. Verse 25. Every one of them brought his present. Articles of silver and gold, garments, myrrh, spices, horses, and mules. So much year by year. Church, this is not his doing. This is God's doing. 26. And Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen whom he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. The, the, the stables at the Kentucky Derby look minuscule in comparison to Solomon's stables. Dude loves horses. A king riding a horse. His people... On horses. 
the author is revealing Solomon's economic dominance. This is Isaiah 60, the wealth of the nations coming to God's king. Verse 27, and the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone. And he made cedar as plentiful as the sycamore of the Shephelah. And Solomon's import of horses was from Egypt and Kew. And the king's traders received them from Kew at a price. A chariot could be imported from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. And so through the king's traders, they were exported to all the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Syria. One theologian says Solomon has become the arms dealer for the Middle East, importing and exporting chariots and horses, buying low and selling high. Everything he touches turns to gold, even as, even as goblets. You must see the magnitude of Solomon's trading success. All the wealth in one king. That's pointing to Christ. The wealth of Solomon pointing to the wealth of Christ. Two truths to close us out. First, look at God's king on his horse. Solomon is not the only king in the Bible we find riding a horse. Look at God's king on his horse. Solomon is not the only king in the Bible we find riding a horse. In Revelation 19 we find God's king again with horses. A whole derby full of horses. He rides a white one and his followers ride with him. They are also on white horses. The saints of all ages ride with Jesus. The original readers of Revelation would have been struck by this fact. Jesus doesn't wait until after the battle to ride in on a white horse. He rides to the battle on a white horse. He's guaranteeing victory. He's going against the military practices of the Roman world who only rode white horses when the battle was over. White horses symbolize triumphant military achievement. This is God's warrior Messiah. He's riding a terrible white steed. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. He's covered with blood before the battle even begins. That's because it's his own blood shed for sinners. He's still bearing the marks of his crucifixion. He's our blood-stained warrior, bloody before the battle begins, bloodied for us. Jesus is the only one carrying a weapon, a sword. A sword was a weapon of conquest. The original readers knew and feared the Roman sword. But this sword was, would not hang by his side like the swords of the Romans. No, it wasn't attached to his side. It was proceeding from his mouth. Strange place for a sword. Yet this is the only sword my Lord and Master wields. The only one he needs. The sword coming out of his mouth speaks of power. The whole army of God on white horses, that's unusual. Typically, just the leader enters the town on a white horse and his army enters behind him on black and brown horses. What makes this scene so remarkable is that our bloodied warrior provides the same transportation he has for us. 
Millions upon millions of white horses galloping into battle. They follow the one with white garments drenched in blood. He's our captain. He's our shield. He's our defender. He's our mighty warrior. For those of all nations who choose not to bow before God's king, he will destroy. We know how history ends and how the new earth begins. We ride with Jesus here and we will ride with him then. Look at God's king on his horse. Solomon is not the only king in the Bible we find riding a horse. Look at God's king on his horse. Look at God's care of his children. He will not care for Solomon and the lilies while neglecting you. Look at God's care of his children. He will not care for Solomon and the lilies while neglecting you. I showed you. I already showed you. I showed you how Jesus preached the Queen of Sheba story. Now let me show you how Jesus preached the riches of Solomon's story. He only preached it once. Jesus preached it to his anxious followers. Are you following God's king and you tend to be anxious? Worried? Jesus pointed to Solomon's riches and said, You should not be worried because of this. In fact, I can't say it any better than he did, so let, let me just read it. Matthew 6, 25, Jesus says... Therefore, I tell you, do not, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Here it is. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O oh, you of little faith? You should look at God's care of Solomon and God's care of the lilies and cease your worrying. Cease your anxiety. Look at Solomon in all his glory and be reminded that God cares for you. God loves you. Beloved, Solomon is not every man. He is God's king. What a, what a perfect picture of Christ. It's no way Solomon can ruin this. 
right? I'll meet you here next Lord's Day for chapter 11, and we shall find out. Let's pray together. Father, you ride the stallion of history. You control it. Solomon's throne, I must admit, it was impressive. Steps leading up to it, flanked by lions. But it pales in comparison to the throne you are sitting on right now. That's a throne. And we bow before it. Amen.